everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the CarTech Garage and another week in automotive history. What's up, Max? Not much, you know, just ready for another week in automotive history. Excited <laughs> here at WDJ on a, a nice early Saturday morning, quite foggy, but now you too. got to ride the bike though. Yeah. When I was coming down into, uh, into downtown Cincinnati, I was coming across the bridge and you could, and basically the entire city was completely covered in fog and only the, um, the very tops of the buildings were peeking over when I was coming across the bridge. <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever seen that. It was really, I mean, it's beautiful, but. Yeah, there's no question at all. It was really wet, too. I said coming in, I was <laughs> like seeing daylight, and then it was getting dark again. So it was, uh, I was like, I can only imagine how his ride is. My visor kept fogging up. It was off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's go ahead and kick it off this week in automotive history. So uh, Saturday, March uh, 21st, 1987. So that was 34 years ago, and this was the day that uh, Jokin Mass and Bobby Rehal won the 12 Hours of Sebring. Now, they were driving a Porsche 962. Um, so the 962 is awesome, but the 12-hour endurance race had basically been dominated by Porsche in those early years, especially, um, you know, mostly because they had the baddest race car that could be built at the time. I mean, plain and simple, they had the baddest car. So let's recap on their 12 Hours of Sebring Riff victories, shall we? Okay. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. So we've got 60, 68, 71, 73, 76, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, and 08. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> so the 962 was an absolute monster. I mean, very much like the Porsche 917 earlier had dominated Can-Am racing and very much like the 956 ate everyone in Group C. You know, remember the 956 is the car that held the Nürburgring lap time record for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. Bad, bad car. And um, Porsche, of course, had to come out guns ablaze and use their 998, uh, 919 Evo. They clocked a 519 on it, which is, Jeez. again, crazy. I mean, you know, it's like a, over a minute faster, almost a minute faster. I think the uh, 956 held a 611. And that was you know, way back when. <laughs> and those are some serious numbers. I mean, I know like your, your average run of the mill cars are what, like the eight. Even like, like supercars. Yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. eight is, is fast. Unbelievably fast. Yeah. Um, and even to, to think about that, they've got uh, a 962 or sorry, a 956 um, on display at the Porsche museum and it's glued to the ceiling just to remind everybody how much downforce it had. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so they actually replaced the 956 with the 962. Uh, of course it was wonderful. In fact, it was so good that a lot of privateer teams were like begging to buy them. Mm. They were contacting Porsche and asking them to build them. So of course, you know, almost no 962s are totally like, you know, as most race cars, of course, are usually modified and improved to suit the style of racing or the, the driver. Um, and the other cool thing about the 962 that, you know, you know, many cars can't say this. Um, it ended up making it onto the street. You know, most tried and true race cars never get to say that. No, they uh, don't. They usually stay on the, the racetrack and yeah, totally legal. <laughs> yeah, they get impounded immediately. So there were a few aftermarket tuners um, that you know basically converted these old race cars for street use, making one hell of a supercar. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean something that would absolutely dominate you know in Le Mans, and they're driving it around on the street. Um, so another quick tidbit on this. So the guy that designed this car, his name is Norbert Singer, and he actually got hired by the Porsche Racer team in 1970, I think. He graduated earlier, um, and ending the 1969 season, uh, Porsche had lost the 24 Hours of Le Mans, 
Um, they were having a lot of transmission failures with their new 917. Very, very powerful car. Um, you know, flat 12, and it was basically breaking transmission. So they hired this guy, Norbert Singer. He's a very, very talented engineer. And they said, hey, um, we're going to task you very first with trying to cool these gearboxes down, trying to cool down these transmissions so we can try to make it the whole 24 hours. So he was very successful in that endeavor. And the next year, they actually came back and won Le Mans in 1970. Which that's, you know, huge deal. Yep. So he was, a lot of people say, especially people that are really, really into Porsche history, say that, um, you know, Norbert Singer was basically the brains behind the, uh, the 962 and the 956. Um, you know, he was just incredibly talented at what he did. Um, and the other thing, he designed the Porsche 935. Now, a lot of people already know what the 935 is. It's basically a heavily modified 911 that won overall at Le Mans in 1979, mm-hmm. even against the higher class because they all, you know, had issues with broken parts. Um, but that was incredible because in 1979, that 911 chassis that he modified was 15 years old already. He took Jeez. a yeah, he took a 15 year old <laughs> chassis, modified it heavily, and then went and won at Le Mans. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, we'll go ahead and move forward. Um, so March 22nd, 1958, 63 years ago. Um, so on this day, the, um, the Sebring 12-hour uh, World Sports Car uh, Championship was held, and Peter Collins and Phil Hill won it this year. They were driving a Ferrari. And um, there was a, a, a ton of people in this, in this race. I mean, you had names like Sterling Moss, Tony Brooks, you know, they were both driving an Aston Martin, but of course, you know, they actually took the lead initially and they had to succumb to the Italian fur- fury that was mm. being driven by Phil Hill. But I mean, if you look back at these old races, this was a great time in racing. I mean, you had, you know, Ferraris, Jaguars, Astons, Corvettes, Lotuses, Alphas, all racing on the same track in a sports car course. Um, and Phil Hill is a, an amazing driver. I and mean, he's the only American born driver to ever win an F1 championship. Really? I did not yeah, know that. Yeah. 1961. Um, in fact, um, I can't say this on the radio show, but Bob, our engineer mm. here here at WDGO, he used to be really good friends with Phil Hill. Really? Yeah, he actually followed him around the pits to the races and everything. He was great friends with him in the 60s um, yeah, until he passed away. I think he passed away in 08. Um, yeah, blisteringly fast driver. <laughs> yeah, you should ask Bob. <laughs> it's an Bob. understatement. We'll, okay. have to, we'll have to ask Bob. I did not know Have that. him tell us some stories about that because he's a, he's a huge racing fan. All right, so March 23rd, 1986, 35 years ago, this was the day that the 1986 Brazilian Grand Prix was held. Now, Nigel Mansell, uh, who's obviously, uh, if if you guys follow F1, you guys are going to know all these names, but Nigel Mansell ended up being out of the race on the first lap. He tried an overtaking maneuver on Senna, and you can't outbreak Senna. I mean, what are you thinking? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Come on now. So, I mean, he did have one hell of a mustache, though. Have you ever seen Nigel Mansell's mustache? I I did. I have not. Oh, my God. I mean, you got to give that man some credit. I will say, though, you know, uh, Senna didn't actually win that race, although it was a a pretty hard-fought battle. Nelson Piquet ended up coming around him and winning. Um, But those Brazilian drivers, Nelson Piquet and Ayrton Senna, finished 1-2 with Senna, of course, in second. Now, this was when Senna was racing for Lotus. So this was in 86. His car was not very competitive in 86. This was before Lotus ended up teaming up with Honda and using that Honda Turbo V6 that Williams had. Um, so they got those uh, with Lotus in 87 in the Lotus 99T. That was the first one that they put the Honda engine in. 
And then he ended up leaving Lotus for the 88 season because he still didn't win, and he partnered up with McLaren. Since he had kind of built up a pretty good relationship with Honda through Lotus's um, relationship with mm-hmm. them, McLaren ended up hiring him on after Elaine Prost um, agreed to have him on as a driver, okay. and they took him on to the McLaren team. And then, of course, his first year with McLaren, won the championship in 88, and then he won again in 90 and again in 91. Uh, all three of those were with McLaren. Um, so he drove for Tolman, Lotus, McLaren, and then finally Williams. And then uh, his season with Williams, in fact, that was uh, when he passed away in 94 at Imola. Yeah, too bad, too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Ayrton Senna's one of my favorites. <laughs> I could tell, obviously. I could tell. <laughs> all right, so taking it way back here, March 24th, 1936, 85 years ago. It's quite a bit of time. So a famous German racing car driver named Hans Stuck established a series of Class B records, speed records, and he was in a six-liter auto union. They closed down a section of highway between Frankfurt and Heidelberg in Germany, and it was even damp. It was wet outside, but he still went and you know competed for all these records that didn't stop him from making three of them, three world records in this one run. So he established a world record for 100 miles at 166 miles per hour. It only took him 36 minutes and, and a few seconds. Um, and of course, during that, he made three other world records. So he basically used this, you know, long section of highway. It was 113 kilometers, it said. And what he had to do, and this is what makes that 166 mile per hour record even more incredible. He had to bust a Yui at the end of it. <laughs> it wasn't like a straight shot. He had to go stop, turn around, you know, do a Yui and come all the way back and, and accelerate back up to top speed. And he still managed that. That's just insanity. Oh, but I mean, back then, Auto Union and and Mercedes were building the fastest cars imaginable. I mean, especially the fastest cars that were ever for road use. And this was before, you know, land speed racing really took off. Um, You know, obviously, this was pre-World War II, and nobody was building cars faster than these things, at least (laughs) not in a straight line. You know, they, they... there were, you know, various races, you know, like in, in the Targa Florio and the uh, Milmiglia, you know, where smaller circuit cars were beating them, but these were the big boys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So moving forward a bit, March 25th, 1984. This is the day that Ayrton Senna actually made his Formula One debut, and this was in Brazil. He was, in fact, racing for Tolman. So he got his, his start with Tolman, not in the most competitive car, but he was still able to really prove his, his worth. Um, you know, be, before being hired on uh, on Lotus. But um, this was the first round of the 1984 season, and they had just mandated that uh, fuel limit, so you couldn't refuel. So this was first race, and this was basically the first race where you couldn't refuel or anything. So a lot of drivers were still kind of getting their bearings on their race strategies, and everything was, was different. Um, but anyway, he didn't end up winning this, unfortunately. Uh, Elaine Prost won in his McLaren. You know, the McLaren MP4 was, they were just dominant at the time. It was all, you know, McLaren and Williams, McLaren and Williams the entire time. Anyway. All right. So March 26, 1966, 55 years ago. uh, And I know that, you know, all of these um, weeks in automotive history, they kind of sound repetitive because if you look back, you know, obviously they usually hold all these race series the same times every year. So I've got another one for the 12 hours of Sebring. Yep. Yep. And uh, this time, in 1966, as you guys probably know, it was won by Mr. Ken Miles and Lloyd Ruby in a Ford GT. Mm-hmm. So the Ford GT, it, you know, the Ford GT40, this was the X1, their experimental one. Um, so the other part is they didn't actually lead this race. Dan Gurney's car was leading the race. 
this entire time. And with about four minutes left, uh, he had an issue with his car. So he stopped on course. He got out of his car and started trying to push it across the finish line <laughs> because on these 12 hour races, you don't have a necessary finish line. Yeah. You just have distance. Whoever covers the most distance within the time wins. And Dan Gurney's out trying to push his car as much further <laughs> as it'll go. And with just like one minute left, uh, they fly by him in the Ford GT40. <laughs> of course, of course, yeah, of course, of course. Anyway, you know, 66 was a great season for racing in general, especially endurance racing, because that's the year that they finally came back and dominated at Le Mans, did the one, two, three finish. Um, you know, didn't they make a movie about that or something? <laughs> a couple of movies, maybe. Ford? There we Ford, go. Ford? Something, something like that? I can't remember. <laughs> All right, so let's that take, is a it, must too, let's by take the way. it way back here. Um, what's a must? Seeing that movie. Oh, it is. Yeah. Ford versus Ferrari and Rush. I recommend those two movies to everybody. Oh, and The Art of Racing in the Rain. Oh, yeah. That's, that one. Guys, I bawled my eyes out. I can attest. My buddy and I saw it <laughs> in theaters and my wife was with us. And she looks over at my friend and I and these two grown men are tearing up in the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, wait, you know, there's a dog in the movie. And, you know, oh, my goodness. You know, it's just, it hits hard. My heart, my heart. <laughs> I'm not and a not soft guy, that, but... Whew. Not only that, the voice in it is Jack from This Is Us. Yep. And, like, that made it even more, because I was still watching This Is Us at the time. I was really emotionally invested in that, too. <laughs> and it was just tearing me apart. Just a bad time. <laughs> All right, so last one up here, March 27th in 1899. This was uh, way, way back. So I really like this story. And... um this is obviously, you know, one of those things that it was at the very beginning of the automobile. And this guy named Camille Genazzi, he was a crazy Frenchman that basically decided to build an electric torpedo on wheels and ride the thing. And um, what? Yeah. <laughs> on, anyway, so, <laughs> OK, so there's a French guy. His name's Camille Genazzi. And uh, he decided to build the very first purpose-built land speed record car. The very first time anybody had actually tried to make a land speed record. And it was an electric vehicle. He developed these cool new alloys and things to use. They, he used this alloy called um, partinium. So it, it's made of aluminum, tungsten, and magnesium. And uh, he drove this thing. And I've got a picture of it here. If, I mean, if you, anybody wants to look up, uh, look up Camille Genazzi. And he called it the never satisfied. In French, it's la jamais content, I okay. think is how you pronounce it. But it means the never satisfied. And he basically had two direct drive electric motors hooked up. It was good for what they said was 68, 70 horsepower, something around there. And it actually had one of the earliest sets of car tires. Really? Uh, like Michelin, Michelin car tires. They, like specifically yeah. Michelin? Yep, they were Michelin car tires, one of the first set of Michelin car tires they'd ever made. Um, and this was actually the first car to ever break 60 miles per hour <laughs> or 100 kilometers per hour. Um, he, he broke both of those records. Now, a lot of people say that, you know, there's a different guy that, that broke the 60 mile per hour record, but that was a timed event. This guy broke 100 kilometers an hour and actually went over 60. So, he really is the ultimate crown. But literally, it's like an electric torpedo on a ladder frame with wheels, and you sit on top of the thing. So, I mean, like, he had his aerodynamics, you know, kind of good, except for the human being sitting right on top of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't look like it would go 60 miles an hour. It looks like it would be a terrifying 60 miles an hour. I'm sure it was. I mean, you know, anyway, he obviously, you know, had to have a little bit of room to fit something down in the cockpit. <laughs> but... So um, the other weird thing, you know, a lot of these guys through history have 
died in weird circumstances. Like we were talking about Rudolph Diesel and how he mm. disappeared off the boat and everything. So Janatsi actually died uh, a few years later in 1913 in a hunting accident. So he thought himself a comedian. And while him and his friends were on a hunting trip with guns, he went behind a bush and started making animal noises as a prank. And one of his friends thought it was a wild animal and just shot into the bush. And they realized it was him. They tried to get him back to the hospital, but he, he bled out on the way. Jeez. It's like, what the hell, man? <laughs> I'm all for playing jokes, but, you know, <laughs> time and a place, I guess. Yeah, that's that's too much. That's, like, don't pretend to be a wild animal when all of your friends are out hunting wild animals. <laughs> yeah, no, never a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just call him a name or something. <laughs> anyway, so that wraps up this week in automotive history. I hope you guys have enjoyed Um you know, we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. Bye.